If he'd been in Lhasa, the capital city of Tibet, on a certain oppressively hot day in the 8th century, there would have been only one place to be, that being the Todlum Pleasure Park. A beautiful park on the banks of the river Brahmaputra. And if you'd been there, you would have seen colourful tents and crowds milling about. No doubt there was the Tibetan equivalent of the Indian chai seller. And the Tibetan aristocracy dressed in all its finery. At the centre of it all, you would have seen the great Tibetan king Trisong Detsan, broad-chested and proud, with a fine moustache, surrounded by his queens and ministers of state. You would have also noticed a rather strange atmosphere. Not only was it oppressively hot, there was an atmosphere of restless expectation. Everybody seemed to be waiting, waiting for someone. They were all waiting for someone they'd never met, but someone they hoped, they keenly hoped, would solve their problems. Especially King Trisong Detson, who had some very big problems indeed. Some years before, Trisong Detson had become a Buddhist. He'd renounced the old Tibetan religion of Bun and had gone for refuge, committed himself to the Buddha, his teaching, that's the Dharma, and the Sangha, the spiritual community. And in those times, if the king became a Buddhist, the country became a Buddhist, became Buddhist. The king was the land. There was opposition, of course, especially from factions within the Tibetan government. There was still strong attachment to the old religion and to the propitiation of the gods and the bloody sacrifice to the gods of the land, of the soil, the rivers, the lakes, the mountains, the forests. But King Trisong Detson was a very determined and very proud man indeed and was not to be thwarted. He was a Buddhist and, would, and Buddhism would be propagated in the land of snows among the red-faced savages, as the Tibetans described themselves. And King Trisong Detson had invited to Tibet some years before a great Indian monk, a very famous monk named Shantarakshita. And Shantarakshita had ordained the first Tibetan monks. He'd initiated many people into Buddhism and he taught the basic Buddhist doctrines and teachings and practices. He'd also taught the path of what's known as the Bodhisattva, the practices of the being dedicated to gaining enlightenment for all beings. And Shantarakshita was famous for his kindness and compassion, as well as his wisdom, so much, known that, that, so, much so that he was known as Kenpo Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva abbot. So things were going well, so much so that Trisong Detson decided that what was needed, what was needed now was a monastery, a centre where monks could study and meditate and perform rituals, an intensive training centre. This would also be a place where everybody could gather, everybody in the land could gather to hear the Dharma, to practice the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching together as a Sangha, as a spiritual community. 
So, with all the proper ceremonies, what were known as the Bhumi Pujas, the, the Earth Pujas, the building work was commenced and the construction of Samye Monastery, the glorious monastery, began. And at first, there were all kinds of auspicious signs. It all looked set fair. Everything looked good. The foundations were laid and the walls of the various temples and dormitories and so on were going up. But then strange things began to happen. The builders would work in the day. They'd work very hard. And they were working for the king, after all. They'd put up the walls and so on. But the next day when they came to work, in the morning, everything had been taken down. All the materials had been returned to their original places. The boulders, the stones, the earth. This went on for some time, so there was no progress. The walls would go up, the walls would come down in the middle of the night. There was lots of effort, lots of work, and nothing to show for it. And Trissom Detson was desperate. He consulted Shantarakshita. He said, he said, is this to do with some impurity I have? Do I lack your blessing? What's the problem? Shantarakshita said, well, it was, it's nothing to do with that. Actually, it's all to do with the gods and spirits of the land. They're doing this. They are obstructing and destroying the building. And he said, there's nothing I can do about that. Shantarakshita just admitted, I can't deal with these forces so Trisam Detson said, well, is there anybody, anybody who can deal with this? And Shantarakshita said, there's only one man, actually, in all the world who can help us. And that is the great yogi, the great magician, the great teacher, Padmasambhava, the lotus-born. He knows, he has the reputation for conquering and mastering and subduing and transforming demons and gods and spirits. He's famous for it. He has these special powers and abilities. He's the only one who can help us. And the last I heard of him, said Sangharakshita, he was staying near, somewhere near, the site of the Buddha's enlightenment. So you need to send for him. So Trisong Detson gathered together some trustworthy young men he gave them gold and gifts, you know, because if you want a great teacher to come in those days, I mean, you had to offer gold and gifts. They're not just going to come, you know, just because you ask. You've got to give them something. You've got to show you mean it. And he sent them off on the long and difficult journey to India. And it must have been a very, very difficult journey indeed. They were very, very brave fellows, leaving the snowlands going into the heat of India with all the different languages and customs. And Padmasambhava, they did meet Padmasambhava, they did present their gifts, but he didn't immediately come. He responded positively, but nothing happened. These gurus are very strange. So more delegations were sent to India, but Padmasambhava wasn't going to come that easily. He had things to do important things and he was not at the beck and call of anyone especially proud kings but then after a while he made his way in stages 
to Tibet, passing through Nepal on the way as he went stopping to meditate and to perform various rituals. And in the autumn, he entered Tibet. But even then, he didn't immediately go to Lhasa to see the king. He had things to do, strange and mysterious things. From autumn to summer, he moved around Tibet. He stayed in the mountains. He stayed in the valleys. He stayed by the lakes. He stayed in the forest groves, meditating, performing puja and ritual. The king repeatedly sent delegations to him, asking him to come. He was getting very impatient. He wanted his monastery. He wanted this man. But Guru Padmas sent them packing. He had things to do. So what was he up to? Well, let's hear it from uh, the old text. I'm going to read from the Padma Katang, the testament of Padmasambhava, translated uh, in the West as the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. And I'm just going to read some sections from, uh, from this book. So, uh, from this, a very famous passage, actually. So this is what Padmasambhava was up to. <coughs> then on the plateau of the sky, he reached the black castle. The white darkening of the glaciers thought a thunderbolt would destroy him. But the guru, surrounding her with one finger, swept her away into a lake. The terrified goddess fled as far as the lake of Palmopaltan. At once the water began to boil, the flesh dropped from her bones, and the guru hurling a vajra, a thunderbolt, blinded her in one eye, whereupon she rose above the surface and uttered this supplication, face of the master, O vajra, vajra strength of the rosary of skulls, I swear I will do no more harm. This solemn promise comforts me. What else can I do? I yield. I approach as the Guru's vassal. And she gave the heart of her life while he bound her by an oath. As her secret name, she was called the unfleshed turquoise and diamond lamp. And he committed a great treasure to her care. Then Padmasambhava pushed on to the fort called the Bird's Nest of Oyug. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings, isn't it? <laughs> the great Gainyen, Dorje Legpa Kyong, this is another powerful spirit, appeared amid his retinue of 360 brothers. Padmasambhava bound them all by an oath and left a treasure in their care. Then when he came to the valley of Shampo, Shampo appeared, the white yak, the size of a mountain, from mouth and nostrils, exhaling whirlwinds and snow tempests. Using the, hot, the iron hook gesture, the, mudra, the, the guru, Padmasambhava, seized him by the muzzle, bound him with the gesture of the noose, chained him with the gesture of the shackles, and with the bell gesture, flogged him body and mind. Now when the yak gave the heart of his life, the guru bound him by oath and entrusted him with a treasure. To test Guru Padmasambhava, 
The spirit of the Argolis Plateau took on the guise of a white reptile and blocked his path. The head reached the district of the Uyghurs, while the tail coincided with the Sog River of Kans and Guillermo Tang. With a staff, the guru transfixed the servant, serpent through the middle. You are the King Naga chalk colour, king of the Gandharavas with the five hair coils. Depart and prepare yourself to make a circular ablation. The spirit fled to the ice-cold snows, but the snows melted, and when the greenish ice had given way, the black mountain peak could be seen. The spirit could withstand no longer. So he served a circular feast, decked out with dainties and changing into a child, wearing a turquoise hairnet and a turban of white silk. He did obeisance and circumambulated. He gave the heart of his life and having been bound by oath, he was given 100 treasures to watch over. As his secret name, he was called Major Vajra of Great Power. And so on and so on and so on. So this is the famous story of Guru Padmasambhava mastering, transforming the gods of Tibet. This is what Guru Padmasambhava was spending the best part of a year doing before he meets King Trisom Detson. Guru Padmasambhava, in other words, was going down into the depths of the Tibetan land, the Tibetan collective unconscious even, to tame, to master, to transform the gods, the spirits that were obstructing the progress of the Dharma, the Buddha's teaching. So what on earth can this mean for us here and now in the 21st century? Is this just some quaint, exotic Eastern tale? What possible relevance can it have for us? Well, to understand that, we have to ask ourselves the most fundamental question of all. What is life actually for? What is my life actually for? Deep down, what is my life really all about? What am I here for? Last week, when we looked at the early part of Padmasambhava's life, we saw how he left home left his royal palace and spent many years journeying through the eight great Indian cremation grounds. He stayed there to meditate, to receive teachings and to undergo all kinds of transformative experiences. And we saw in the talk we had on cremation grounds, uh, we saw that the cremation ground, amongst other things, symbolises impermanence and death. It symbolises the continuous arising and passing away of all things. The cremation ground symbolises the basic truths of existence. So in the face of this fundamental truth of death and impermanence, what is life really for? What are we doing with our lives? What is the most meaningful way to live, given that life could end at any moment in death? When we strip everything away, what matters for the Buddha, for Buddhism, for Padmasambhava, the only meaningful way to live in the light of the truth of death and impermanence, the only way to live is to transform ourselves. 
is to develop ourselves radically and deeply, to transform ourselves in the most revolutionary way possible. The only thing to do is to transform ourselves into a Buddha, into an enlightened being. The only thing to do, the most meaningful thing to do, is to put at the centre of our lives the cultivation of wisdom, the cultivation of seeing things as they really are, and the development of love and compassion for others, the love and compassion that enables others to grow along the path to enlightenment. That is what life is for, according to Buddhism. Why is that so important? Why is that essential? Because simply we are essentially growing and evolving beings. Life is characterised by growth and becoming. In human being, that growth has to be conscious, deliberate and individual. We are not going to be carried on the back of evolution anymore. We have to make our own individual effort to evolve and to change and grow towards Buddhahood. And if we resist, if we block that, the result is pain and dissatisfaction. Meaninglessness. So we need to find meaning. We need to live meaningfully. Maybe, maybe for some of you here, it won't be that Buddhism is that for you. That Buddhism won't be meaningful for you. I know some of you are here on your first retreat. But whatever, I urge you to use this time, this retreat, to find meaning. We, none of us, Buddhist or not Buddhist, we don't want to reach the end of our life empty-handed, in the words of Padmasambhava himself. So we find a meaningful way of living. We decide to take up a path. We decide to work on the development of wisdom and compassion. We practice meditation. We take up an ethical discipline. We study Buddhist texts. We go on retreats. We meet spiritual friends. We become generally a better person. But what can happen? Suddenly, seemingly overnight, all our efforts are just blown apart. We start breaking the precepts, telling fibs, or whatever it might be, getting pissed. Um, think of your own versions. We go back to our old bad habits, and our spiritual life is in tatters. And this can be really distressing, really frustrating. You know, right, we, we pull it together again, right, right, yeah, come on, meditate every day, you know, stop going on the booze, you know, stop being, you know, stop being, you know, nasty to my girlfriend or whatever it is, you know, to my mum or dad or whatever. I'm, you know, I'm going to do it now, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to meditate. And you, you know, this time of year, you know, it's the time of resolutions, isn't it? So I'm going to bed tonight. Tomorrow I'm going to get up early, I'm going to meditate. I'll go to the Buddhist centre. And then come the morning, all those intentions have gone. Overnight, seemingly, in the darkness, <laughs> something's happened. And they've all gone away. 
We don't meditate. So this is just like the gods of the Tibetan soil, the Tibetan land, destroying Samye Monastery at night. What's happening here, of course, is that our deeper unconscious forces and energies are not being harnessed in our Buddhist life, in our spiritual life. Those deeper forces are destroying our spiritual life. They're destroying our pursuit of meaning. They're destroying our Buddhist practice. So we need to do something about that. If not, our Buddhism will be skin deep. It will be superficial. It will be a set of nice ideas, Buddhist platitudes and pious sentiments. It will lack life, vitality and energy. So we need to transform those, those depths. We need to get depths. We need to get them on board. And Padmasambhava is <clears throat> the archetype of enlightenment that symbolises the transformation of the swirling, chaotic, sometimes violent depths. The depths within ourselves, the depths outside. You see our shrine here. Uh, for this retreat, we have Padmasambhava in front of the Buddha, coming almost out of the Buddha, coming out of the stillness, coming out of the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha. Padmasambhava is active, coming out of that stillness of, in, of enlightenment. He's that aspect of enlightenment that goes down into the depths to tame, to master, to transform, to wrestle with and transform those depths. So what could this mean for this? How do we address the depths? How do we approach their transformation? Well, first of all, we need to be very clear that the transformation of the depths that we're talking about takes place within the con context of someone actually committed to the path to enlightenment. That is our context. Sometimes you hear people going on about exploring their depths, looking at their stuff, working on their stuff, going down, etc., etc. <laughs> but it's purely psychological. It's purely psychological. It's all to do, if you like, with the contents of their own ordinary mind, actually. It's without any spiritual or transcendental vision actually. It has very little or even nothing to do with following the path to enlightenment. Nothing to do with giving rise to the mind and heart of enlightenment, what's called the bodhicitta, the essence, the very essence of wisdom and compassion. So to transform the depths, the way Padmasambhava transforms the depths, the depths, you need first of all the widest the deepest possible spiritual and transcendental ideal. And that needs to be alive in your life. So that's our context. That's Padmasambhava's context. Padmasambhava is a bodhisattva. He's someone utterly focused, not only on his own spiritual development, but also utterly focused on enabling others to develop spiritually. He's been called to Tibet because 
those who want to develop and transform themselves there are blocked. They're obstructed. They cannot build their monastery. They're suffering. They cannot establish the supportive conditions in which to practice. And Padmasambhava has responded to them out of love, out of compassion. And that is why he masters the gods of the land, why he masters the Tibetan psyche, the Tibetan collective unconscious. He isn't into it, he isn't into, into, you know, duffing up the gods, you know, because it's some kind of game, some kind of trip. He's not doing it for its own sake, but because these forces are obstructing the spiritual development of living beings. So if you want to transform the depths, first of all, make sure you are really committed to the Buddhist path and that you are practicing that path intensely. Padmasambhava is a master of that path. He was a great scholar, a great yogi, a deep meditator, a spiritual friend. He was absolutely soaked in the Dharma. He's wrapped in the Dharma. His lush Dharma robes he's wearing symbolise the fact that he was completely enveloped by the Dharma. He brings all of that to the task of transformation. So the fir- that's the first thing, to transform the depths. Pr- don't even think in terms of transforming the de- depths. Think, first of all, of fully soaking yourself, enveloping yourself in Dharma practice. Find what is meaningful and live by it. Secondly, to transform the depths, you need courage, great courage and equanimity to stay with whatever is happening, whatever is being thrown at you. These gods, when they're aroused, get incredibly violent. They attack, they go crazy, and they're incredibly clever. So we have to stay with whatever is happening. Let's, let's get, give an example. You might be meditating. You might have been meditating for a while and you think, oh, meditation in Buddhism, it's all about becoming calm, nice and calm, you know, nice and easy and accepting yourself and calm. And, you know, yes, it is to do with that. And then suddenly you find all these weird emotions going on, you know, strong, painful, violent emotions all sort of swirling around in you or you might suddenly feel overwhelmed a tremendous fear. You don't know what the fear's about, but there it is, and you think, there's something wrong. This isn't proper meditation. I should be calm, and you try to sort of push it all down. Sometimes you can feel under, under sort of weird attack in meditation. It's not coming from anybody else. It's coming from within you, you know, almost as if you're being cut to bits in meditation, violent stuff, or intense, weird sexual stuff. Bam! Comes flying out of nowhere. Well, you've got to weather that. You've got to keep sitting through that. You notice one of the gods that uh, Padmasambhava deals with, I think it's, is it Shampo, the great yak? He breeds blizzards and snowstorms. Uh, Padmasambhava, Padmasambhava sits through the blizzard and the snowstorm, completely unaffected. He melts him in fact. So you've got, to, you've got to sit through that. You're bringing, if you sit through it, you're bringing all that 
stuff into awareness, into consciousness, and it will enrich you. Sometimes, actually, these forces can be external. They, they usually come up when you're trying to create something, trying to build something. Maybe you're trying to run a retreat, like this one, create a retreat, or open a Buddhist centre, or you're running a community, or a, a business, or something like that. And in doing all this, people get really stirred up. They get Because they're living out their ideals. It's not an idea anymore. It's actually being expressed in action with people. So all sorts of strong emotions and tendencies will arise. And you have to stay with it all. Maintaining your spiritual practice. Maintaining your overall purpose. I've seen many a good Buddhist uh, just blown away by the energy energies generated within and without as they get nearer to the depths. And the best way to weather all this is to surround what is happening. Sometimes Padmasambhava does that. He uses these gestures, these mudras, or expands himself to surround what is happening with a really deep, rich awareness and intense loving-kindness. Padmasambhava's loving-kindness is described as completely fearless, almost fierce in its intensity. That's the kind of equanimity, the quality of equanimity that you need. But Padmasambhava does more than that. Even in the different tales of the mastering of the gods, we find after each encounter the text saying that the god gave the heart of his life and Padmasambhava bound him with an oath and he committed a great treasure to his care. This is incredibly significant. The God gave the heart of his life, or sometimes it's a she. She gave the heart of her life. So what's this heart of his life or heart of her life? Well, this is there, the gods or the goddesses, Bija Mantra, as it's called, the seed mantra, the nucleus Mantra. Mantra means something like sacred sound here. And this, the, it's this seed syllable, this nucleus sound, this essential sound or essential name is, re is regarded as their heart essence and their secret name. In these ancient traditions, which you don't just find in India and Tibet, all over the ancient world, everything has a secret name. And uh, that name contains the essence of the thing or the being, their life energy, their heart. When Padmasambhava masters the gods after standing firm and responding to the psychic attack, he gets to the heart of the god. He extracts the name. The name, uh, or rather, they, it's, it, I said they extract the name, they actually give the name. They reveal their name to him willingly. Another way you could look at this, Padmasambhava is naming them. He's naming what is happening. Because he can name what is happening, he has mastery of it. And there's something very precise about this, very precise about naming. Sometimes people think that Padmasambhava is all sort of wild and out of control. Well, yeah, he can dance with the wild psychic energies, 
but it's also incredibly precise. He has this incredibly precise awareness. Sometimes Padmasambhava, when he's dealing with the gods, holds in his hand what's called akila, akilaya, which can be translated as a nail or dagger. And he pins the god with the kilaya. So we need to nail these deeper forces and we nail them through naming them. When you name something, its power ceases and you can begin to apply the remedy. Let's take a very simple example. You might be meditating and you might notice you're just not getting anywhere. There's some sort of block. You know, you, you're concentrating on the breath or whatever, but you're not sort of going deeper. And, you know, you're in a bit of a... It's, it's okay, but you're not sort of going deeper with it. Well, you need to name and nail what obstructs you. You need to name and nail what the block is, what, what the hindrance is, as it's technically called. And you need to name and nail. It's probably not just something that happens in meditation. You also need to name and nail what you're doing in your life generally that makes you have that particular habit in meditation. This naming and nailing is not about having an idea about what's there. It's actually seeing it with a sharp, penetrating awareness, even a sort of fierce awareness, that is, that is seeing that this hindrance is indeed a demon, is indeed destructive. For example, let's take hatred. When you see it, you then have to name it for what it is. You have to nail it, which means knowing that this is a destructive emotion. It's a damaging emotion. It's a poison, a demon that will harm you and will harm others. Sometimes, if the awareness is really sharp, if you're activation of the kilaya is really effective, it will just, in that moment of awareness, dispel that hindrance, dispel the hatred. Sometimes it's not as precise as that, so that you then have to apply a remedy, metabhavna. So that's the first thing, naming. But then the god is also bound by an oath. Having extracted the name of the god, Padmasambhava makes them take an oath. They want to take an oath, a samaya, a powerful oath. It's the kind of oath, samaya is a kind of oath where, well, you know, you, 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 even if your life is at stake, you do not break this oath. That's the quality of it. And the oath that they take, the gods, is to serve and support the dharma and protect the dharma and those who practice the Dharma, they kind of know what will happen if they don't. And they take that oath from Padmasambhava because of their reverence and respect and love for Padmasambhava. So the gods of the land are not destroyed. They're not sort of irredeemably evil or anything like that. You don't really have that in Buddhism. They become servants protectors. They're transformed. Let's take the example of hatred again. Hatred, anger, 
aggression, all that stuff. It's destructive energy. It destroys. It's very troublesome. But if we have that, we could redirect it. Redirect it, channel it away from wounding and destroying people. We use that energy to destroy ignorance and confusion. We transform the hatred into wisdom. Hate destroys people. Wisdom destroys ignorance. It sees into confusion. It penetrates it, destroys it, but never wounds. This is one of the great effects of the Metabhavna practice. You can develop through doing this practice. might sound strange to say. Through developing loving kindness, you could develop with that a critical awareness that never wounds or harms. Sometimes these powerful gods may look frightening, demonic, threatening, wrecking our spiritual life. But when we get to know them, when we communicate with them, we realise, actually, they're not demonic or destructive at all. They are, in fact, gods, diamonds, even guardian angels. To each of them, Padmasambhava gives a treasure to watch over, a Dharma treasure for future generations to discover. So what does this mean to us? Well, we have to find the jewel, the treasure, within the demon. Let's uh, try and take an, uh, give a bit of an example of this. Supposing we're obsessed by sex. Really obsessed by it. It just takes us over on a sort of regular, more or less regular basis. Uh, and, uh, you know, we really get into sexual fantasies in a big way, perhaps especially in meditation, perhaps especially on a retreat. And we're just finding that our practice is being wrecked by these sexual fantasies. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, we're completely awash with it and it's sort of wrecking our practice. This does happen to people. You know, they, they practice, you know, the Dharma for a while and then suddenly they're just in the grip of all sorts of sexual fantasies and so on. So what, what, what's going on? What's really, you could just think, well, this is wrecking my life, wrecking my practice, this desire for sex. But maybe something else is being communicated through all this sexual fantasy. Perhaps it's indicating something. Perhaps there's a lot of imagination, for example, in sexual fantasies. Sometimes people sometimes say, oh, I don't have an imagination. You know, I don't. You know, and then you ask them, well, what about when you're meditating? You know, I can't visualise Buddhism babies. You say, what happens when you're meditating? And, you know, you have a sexual fantasy. You know, a lot's going on. There's a lot of imagination going on in there. So if we're in the grip of sexual fantasies, for example, it probably means that we're not using our imagination. We're not using and developing our creative imagination in our life. We are neglecting the God of imagination and he's turning into a demon. Or maybe we're neglecting the God of adventure. This morning when I was meditating, I noticed you know, a sexual fantasy start to a to arise. And I just asked myself, hang on, hang on, hang on, what, what, what do you want? What do you want here? And I realised I want adventure. I want the God of adventure. Okay, what's inside the God of adventure? Is it, does it mean, you know, you're going to, I don't know, run off to India or something like that? Well, it's the adventure of exploring consciousness. There's all these sort of gods hidden in apparent demons, 
the God of play. The God of play. I mean, some people get very, very restless and sort of blocked and uptight. But they're not playing enough. They're not invoking the God of innocent play. Or sometimes people, you know, are wound up about sex and so on because the gods of friendship and connection are not really alive in their life and they're making themselves felt in some very gross kind of way. Then, there, of course, there are the nature gods, just the gods of nature, be the gods of being in nature. You know, sometimes we can be in a bit of a state but because we're just not spending enough time with the gods of nature feeling the wind on our face, feeling the cold, you know, really dwelling in the mud of the swamp. You know, it's a good idea on retreats to go up to the nature reserve, find a lonely part of it and commune with the god of the swamp. He's a really very, very lovely god indeed. It's said that a repressed god becomes a demon. I think the Latin is Deus Diabolus Inversus Est. What's wrecking our spiritual life might be what's dying to enrich it. So look deeper. Look for the treasure. Look for the jewel in the demon. So these are just a few thoughts on transforming these deeper energies, these chaotic energies even. But in a way they're all rather partial. What we really need to transform the depths within and without is a central, deeply meaningful, compelling, fascinating, beautiful symbol or image or myth that expresses directly our deepest values and ideals, that speaks to the heart and that can make sense of any experience, no matter how threatening, how ugly, how painful. Our life needs to be devoted to that central myth. That is what transforms the gods and demons. What transforms the gods and demons in our stories is Padmasambhava in all his Padmasambhava-ness. He is irresistible. The Darkani, the goddess of the glaciers, cries out, face of the master. She's seen his face. He's, she's seen him. And he is irresistible. And the Naga king, the serpent king, turns himself into a beautifully dressed child to wait on the beautiful, the handsome, the beguiling Padmasambhava. Padmasambhava is fascinating, is irresistible, is captivating. And we need to find in our life a spiritual ideal expressed in such beauty and meaning so that the depths, the gods within us want to be transformed, want to give the heart of our lives, want the heart of, the, sorry, the, the, what are the, the heart, the heart of their lives, want, they want to enrich our lives, want to serve us. If you meditate on Padmasambhava, if you meditate on that form, you do so because you're irresistibly attracted. He's a whole image, uh, a coming together of symbols, uh, the essence of a myth expressing wisdom and, of, and compassion that alchemically transforms all of us. So if we want to transform ourselves and our world, we need to find our 
Padmasambhava and walk into the depths with him. We, we need to find the myth, the central myth that speaks to us. It might not look like that to, to, to all of us, but you need to find that. So having spent the best part of a year mastering the gods, Padmasambhava at last made his way to Lhasa, to the Todlung Pleasure Park, to that great waiting crowd of dignitaries with the king at its centre. And like the king and his queens and ministers, Padmasambhava is very plainly dressed. He's not in fine robes. He's been in the mountains, he's been in the forests, he's been by the lakes, he's wearing red, woollen, weather-stained robes and battered, travel-battered boots. His hair is black and long and tied back. He's got a brown, weather-beaten face. He's incredibly handsome, with deep, dark eyes, kind of with a wildness in them, as well as a tremendous focus, a bit of a beard, a bit of a moustache, and all he carries is a staff, and he strides into the pleasure park, a man in his prime, the stranger, the weird, foreigner, the untamable Indian yogi, the Siddha. He's extraordinary and fascinating. He's the one they've all been waiting for. And, you know, they, as soon as he appears, you know, there's all these dances and music and drumming. And then possibly some disappointment. Possibly some disappointment because although he looks extraordinary, I mean, he's not dressed like a king. Not quite what was expected. And he didn't say anything. He didn't go around glad handing everybody, you know, like that. <laughs> Some, you know, American president or something. He didn't say anything. He just stood there. And the king just stood there as well. They're kind of facing each other. The king with his ministers, his queens, the whole lot of the Tibetan court and Padmasambhava were on his own just looking across at him. And there's a real crackle in the atmosphere because the king was thinking, I'm the king of all Tibet. He is my guest and so he needs to make the first greeting. Shantarakshita did that to me when he came, he bowed to me, and now this Padmasambhava, he must do the same. So he, he's thinking all this. You know, greeting's a big deal in, in uh, uh, the, the Eastern tradition. Who greets first? Ooh, um, very important in terms of hierarchy and so on. So the king's waiting. And Padmasambhava knew exactly what the king was thinking. I don't think he necessarily read his mind. It was just so obvious. You know, it's all in his face. And Padmasambhava thought, I'm greater than this king. And right now, it's the Dharma, it's the truth that has hold of his kingdom. This king of Tibet is great in worldly terms. But who are we? He and I. Plunged in darkness is his mind. But I am learned in the Dharma. I am a Buddha liberated from birth and death. He needs me. Shall I bow down to him? If I do, 
the majesty of the Dharma will be slighted. If I don't, the king will be angry. Yet however it is, I will not bow to him. So there they are. And then Padmasambhava, breaking the tension, just sang. He just started singing. This lone man in front of all these people just sang. He sang himself. He gave full expression to who he was, to what he was. I am Padmasambhava, the Buddha born from a lotus. I possess the wisdom from beyond. I am skilled in the fundamental teachings of the Dharma. I communicate fully all Buddhist ways without any confusion. I am Padmasambhava, the Dharma. I possess the teachings of progressive spiritual practice. Outwardly, I wear the red robes of a monk. Inwardly, I am the highest tantric yogi. I am Padmasambhava, the Sangha. I possess the teachings that unite vision and transformation. My vision is as vast as space. My attention to behaviour as minute as finely ground flower. And he just went on singing verse after verse. I am Padmasambhava the doctor. I am Padmasambhava the astrologer, the sorcerer, the king, the queen, the old man, the young man. The old woman, the young woman, the child, the unborn, the ageless. He's more or less singing that he's everything. He's going to be all these things for everyone there. On and on. And finally, he sang. He said, and you, king of barbarian Tibet, king of a country without virtue, uncouth men and ogres surround you. You rely upon famine serfs and neither joy nor good humour are yours. As for your queens, they are demonesses in human form. Beautiful purple ghouls surround them, sandalwood, turquoise and gold adorn them, but they have no hearts and no minds. You are king, your lungs swell, great is your power, your liver is well satisfied. Scepter in hand and haughty, you stand high. But I, sire, will not bow down before you. And yet, here I am in the heart of Tibet, and I'm here to stay. Great king, can you see? Have I come? Am I here? And with that, he just lifted one hand in salute and a flame shot from that hand, searing the king's garments. And the king, the queens, the ministers, prostrated as though cut by a scythe. This is one of the great dramatic moments in Buddhist literature and incredibly meaningful. Padmasambhava, who here embodies the Dharma, will not bow to the king. He will not bow to the world. He will not be controlled by the world. He will not be depotentiated by the world. Just to be clear, in case you're wondering, Guru Padmasambhava does not have authority issues. He's not against bowing. He's not against paying respect and revering. He's not against looking up 
to others. His life story is full of his devotion to his teachers, to the Buddhas. But he will not bow to the world. He will not play the game of the world. He will not bow to the king. And we can learn from this. How much do we bow to the world? How much do we conform to the world? Are a slave to the world, to the world's distractions? How much is our Buddhism selling out to the world, conforming to the world, conforming, for example, to worldly views? As I said last week, whether those views are represented by the Daily Mail or the Guardian. Years ago, Sangharakshita, our teacher, was asked to give a lecture called Integrating Buddhism into Western Culture. He said, the title's the wrong way round. The real question is, is how can Western culture and society be integrated into Buddhism, integrated into the Dharma, or rather transformed by the Dharma? Because there are so many things in modern life antithetical to the Dharma. So much will have to change. And by Buddhism, by the Dharma, Sangharakshita doesn't mean Eastern Buddhist culture. He means the essence of the Dharma, the means of spiritual transformation, total transformation, that communicates to us directly, directly to what is deepest in us, but which is, is as uncompromising as Padmasambhava's searing flame. Padmasambhava's communication brought about a deep change in King Trisong Detson. He had found his teacher, someone he could really follow, who he could completely look up to, and someone who could bring about what he deeply wanted, the establishment of the Dharma, the construction of Samye Monastery, which was built, after this, with the gods helping the humans the gods of the earth and water working at night while men worked in the day. We don't know how long Padmasambhava stayed in Tibet. Some say it was a very short time, some said it was much longer. However long it was, he made a deep, a profound connection with the Tibetan people and the Tibetan land. A connection characterised by a deep mutual love. Not that everybody responded to Padmasambhava in that way. There, is, there were problems, of course. That's life. But a deep, loving connection happened. And the Dharma took root. Padmasambhava had touched and transformed the depths. And it wasn't just about him affecting others. It's not as if Padmasambhava could come along. He came into this room now and could just flick a few yogic buttons in us and boom, we'd be transformed. It's not like that. Padmasambhava created a spiritual community, a sangha uh, of monks, of nuns, of yogis, of yoginis and ordinary men and women, people like ourselves. They were all inspired by Padmasambhava, all inspired to assist Padmasambhava in the establishment of the Dharma. And they all, working together, created an environment, a world in which people could fully live a spiritual life. The real transformation of the depths happens when inspired by the great myth expressive of wisdom and compassion, 
we work together with others to transform this world. This is what Padmasambhava did. This is what he's always done, what he will always do. His work in Tibet is only actually a small part of it. There is, brothers, a constant war going on between Padmasambhava, the forces of wisdom and compassion, and the demonic, which is destructive and even tyrannical. And we are all part of that great battle, actually. And this great battle is expressed in an even greater myth than the myth of Padmasambhava's conversion of the gods. It's the myth of the mastery of the great mother eater. And that's the subject for the next talk. <laughs>